Well, there are a couple of marks that you ought to look for. Marks of what you might call a healthy church. Marks of the kind of church where if you attend, all things considered, one would expect um, you to have, uh, you to grow um, and you to grow in your faith and you to be edified. Um, And the nine, uh, I often talk about nine marks there was a a great book that was written um, by a man in the states his name is Mark Dever um, which goes into detail in each one of these marks and they're the nine marks that he identified as were often lacking or missing in the church in his day and age and I certainly do think that uh, very often uh, they are marks which are undercooked in the evangelical church today and so these are the kinds of of matters that you should look look for within the context of a local church as you look for a healthy church as you look for a bible teaching church as you look for the kind of church that you can connect to and you can grow with number one is you should listen very carefully to the way that they preach the way that they preach now there are different ways of preaching i'm i'm not going to necessarily well actually i might boil it down to one way of preaching but the, the bottom line is the preaching ought to be biblical so um, preaching should start in God's word it should revolve around God's word the main points should come from God's word the application should be rooted in an exposition that has started in God's word Um, the preaching should be biblical now there are different types of biblical preaching it's possible to preach a topical sermon and be thoroughly biblically soaked as you go about it but very often if you're looking for a church which is being faithful to God's word one of the mechanisms for preaching that you might want to look out for is something called expository preaching and expository preaching quite simply is the preacher on any given Sunday has made the main point of a passage of scripture the main point of their sermon and then has applied that main point into the lives of the hearers Um, I could give you plenty of examples about that probably my favorite one right now comes from Acts chapter 2 um, it is the day of Pentecost the whole chapter of Acts chapter 2 pretty much um, covers that day up until verse 41 uh, and you might ask well what is the main point of the day of Pentecost is it the fire and the answer is no it's not the divided tongues of fire is it the wind and the mighty sound and no the answer is no it's not the wind or the mighty sound is it the the tongues the gift of tongues which uh, which the 120 or the the 12 and Peter stood up and was speaking in and the answer is no that's not the main point of the text the main point of that text is the gospel and it's the power of the gospel it's that Jesus died and that Jesus rose from the grave and it's the response to the gospel that they repented for the forgiveness of sins and it's the results of the gospel that that day um, 3,000 believed were baptized and were added to their number the main point of 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 the day of Pentecost of Acts chapter 2 is that the gospel saves and so uh, when you hear a sermon preached and the main point of the text is made the main point of the sermon and then that sermon is applied into the lives of the hearers maybe some of the application would be to unbelievers even as you hear this text is your heart cut are you looking for salvation this message is for you and for those who are far off turn from your sins and cast yourself upon the person of Jesus Christ and you would be saved maybe it's to the believers in the room you know this gospel message that you hear again today know that this gospel message really is the gospel message that turned the world upside down it's the gospel message friends that we are to take into the world around us it's the gospel message that our family and our friends and our co-workers need to hear it's the gospel message which is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe to the Jew first and then to the Gentile and so my suggestion is as you hear and as you sit under the teaching of Acts chapter 2 you're going to want to hear the Bible preached and then the Bible applied that God might be glorified in your life and you might be built up in God's holy word secondly you're going to want to go to a church which has a keen grasp on on biblical theology a keen grasp on biblical theology now biblical theology is sound doctrine um, it's right thoughts about God it's right beliefs um, it's beliefs that are in accordance with scripture and so to that end you're going to want to ask if the church has a a state 
statement of faith or if they hold to a confession of belief. You're going to want to read through that. And then you're going to want to have a conversation with uh, the pastors or elders of that church and find out if they actually adhere to the statement of belief or confession of faith that they that they hold to. Do they have a good grasp on the whole of Scripture, the whole counsel of God? And do they have the ability to bring that to bear on particular topics, biblical theology, um, Bible preaching, um, thirdly the gospel. Now you might think, well the gospel is pretty simple, right? Everyone's got the gospel. Friends, if you go to a new church, even this Sunday, uh, let's say you visited a church for a couple of weeks and you like the singing and you like the cookies and the coffee after church, my suggestion to you is to go to the pastors or go to the elders of the congregation, go to those who are in senior leadership and ask this one simple question without giving any caveat or any information. They should be able to answer it. If they can't, it is not just a red flag. It is a um, go directly to jail, do not pass, begin kind of conversation. Ask them what is the gospel. Now the answer to the question what is the gospel it can be given in, in a couple of different ways. It's not it's not a cookie cut answer. Um, but probably the simplest ways are given in scripture itself in one Corinthians chapter fifteen as well as Luke chapter twenty four, where Jesus describes the message that his witnesses are to take out into the world. He says that it is Christ died, Christ rose, and all men are to repent in response to that for the forgiveness of sins. That simple. Christ died and Christ rose, repent for the forgiveness of sins. We find that gospel message embedded in all of the first sermons in the book of Acts. So whether it is in the mouth of Peter, in the mouth of Paul, we have that same thought. Christ died, Christ rose, repent for the forgiveness of sins. And when Paul is writing in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 to the Corinthian church, he says, listen, yeah, this is the priority. This is the most important thing, the gospel. Let me lay it out for you clearly. And how does he lay it out? Christ died, Christ rose, repent for the forgiveness of sins. Now that gospel message can be said in different ways, can be said as the the story of the whole Bible, that God is holy and created the world in untested perfection, that man is sinful and fell, rebelled against God. God, that we are in desperate need of salvation outside of ourselves. And so God sent Jesus into this world to live a perfect life, to go to the cross and die for our sins, to rise from the third day in victory over death, to ascend into heaven. And he is seated at the right hand of the Father on high, and he is going to come again to judge the living and the dead and it's going to happen soon and your response to this to the story is you're cut to the heart is you're to repent for the forgiveness of your sins the content of the of the gospel can be um, given in different ways it could be given in the Roman road um, um, so that would be looking at a number of passages in the book of Romans Romans chapter 3 verse 21 Romans chapter 6 verse 21 for all have sinned and fallen short to the glory of God and the wages of sin is death um, go to Romans chapter 10 um, call on the name of the Lord shall be saved and so you work through passages in the book of Romans it can be given in different ways it's it doesn't have to be cookie cut um, but the bottom line is it needs to have those basic elements in it the centrality of Jesus Christ and his substitutionary death on the cross the centrality of the resurrection of Jesus in victory over the grave and then um, friends this call this universal call that goes out to all men to repent to turn from their sins and to cast themselves to call upon the name of the Lord so we spoke about biblical preaching we spoke about biblical theology we spoke about the centrality of the gospel message and in a great way of testing if this church is a gospel church is to ask the question what is the gospel um, and then listen attentively to that answer um, number four is conversion the church should have a right understanding of conversion and by conversion I'm talking about what happens on the other side of hearing the gospel and responding to the gospel a biblical understanding of conversion recognizes both what God does in the process of salvation and what people do in this process of salvation. So God, for instance, gives life. God, for instance, gives sight to the blind. God, for instance, gives the gift of faith and repentance. In conversion, people repent of their sins. They believe in Jesus Christ. A biblical 
understanding of conversion um, basically brings together um, the proclamation of the word, um, the um, biblical theology, uh, this idea of the gospel message as well as uh, this understanding of conversion. And then evangelism. Is this an evangelizing church? How do you know if a church is an evangelizing church? Well, they talk about Jesus a lot for a start. He gets them very excited. They talk about Jesus in their songs. Their songs are often evangelistic, focusing on the work of Christ and on the person of Christ. They are evangelistic in their preaching. They put the gospel message, they leave the cookies on the bottom shelf and they make the gospel message understandable to everyone in the room. They are evangelistic in their ordinances. What are the ordinances? The ordinances are um, the Lord's table and baptism. Um, The ordinance of the Lord's table is when we remember the death of Christ and that Jesus Christ is going to come again and gather his church. Well, in reality, even the Lord's table is a proclamation of the gospel and you will hear the gospel message being proclaimed as the church um, engages in the Lord's table and communion. Um, And you will definitely see the Lord being glorified and salvation being spoken about and evangelism happening in baptisms because you will hear testimonies of those who are baptized, testimonies of life before Christ, of a moment in time that they came to Christ, of the gospel message that they believed and of the fruits of salvation in their life, one of which which includes being baptized um, into church membership. Um, They take membership importantly. We've spoken about Bible preaching, we've spoken about biblical theology, about the gospel, we've spoken about conversion, we've spoken about evangelism. Well, what flows out of those first five um, marks of a healthy church that you're looking for is an understanding of membership, an understanding that um, God has a universal church that we are all part of, those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior. We are part of the um, what in theology is called the Catholic Church. That word just simply means universal. I'm not talking Catholic in terms of a denomination yet. But those who are in a universal church find local expression in a local church, a body of believers that loves Jesus, that gathers together um, for word ministry and for the ordinances and to sing God's word to one another and to see God's word in the ordinances and to affirm one another's membership in the universal church. That's really what church membership is. It's an affirmation of membership uh, in the universal church expressed in a local church. They take discipleship seriously. Friends, I cannot overemphasize the importance of discipleship in terms of our spiritual growth as believers. And you cannot be discipled at home watching... Watching any of the television stations that are available in South Africa um, on whatever accounts you have or watching YouTube, even great preachers on YouTube, you cannot be discipled on YouTube. (laughs) Discipleship requires a collective noun and the collective noun is church. It's a local church, a local expression with real flesh and blood people who can exhort you when you are in sin, who can encourage you when you are downcast, who can who can be involved in teaching you the truths of God's word and whom you can grow alongside. Discipleship is so important. And then uh, church discipline. What happens when people um, uh, are struggling in their faith or, or not struggling with sin? That's a better way of saying, uh, of saying discipline. Uh, are not struggling with their sin. Friends, we have been saved from the penalty of sin in our lives. We have been saved from the power of sin in our lives so that we can live holy lives. We can we can live to God's praise and glory. But we have not yet been saved from the presence of sin in our lives. That will happen one day after we are dead or Jesus Christ comes again and we are translated. It will happen when we have glorified bodies and the presence of sin is even divorced from us. Well, Well, in the interim, what happens when a believer is not struggling with sin? And that sin could be any sin. I'm not even going to name the sin, but is not struggling with sin. They have unrepentant sin in their lives. Well, in a healthy church, that's dealt with. 
we don't just keep quiet and happily carry on while we're seeing a brother not struggling with sin. No, we go to them. We 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 are involved in either formative discipline or in um uh, in corrective discipline. Um, we help one another in this spiritual journey, in this spiritual walk, in this spiritual life. And then, lastly, biblical church leadership. There is a plurality of elders. Um, uh, leadership was never intended to be numo uno at the top a a kind of a strong man who is in charge of a church Um, but rather a plurality of gifted leaders together under Christ um, serving amongst God's people that God might be glorified in their midst well those are nine marks that you can look for in a good church and you need to find a church and let me give you a motivation for finding a local church those are the kinds of things that you need to look for and practically what they would look like in a local church um, but but let me give you a motive for finding a church and it comes down to what the word church is church really means um, at its root um, gathered the gathered or the assembled um, it's the idea of a herald coming into town with a bugle and going that might not have been the greatest example of a bugle, but uh, you can you can give me a little bit of license and fill in the 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 the, the sound of a bugle um, in the middle of the town square and the town folk coming out of their houses and assembling in the middle of the town square to listen to what the herald says and he proclaims the king's order. Well, that's really what's happening on a Sunday at 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 a at a healthy church. Is there's a herald? Uh, we might call him a preacher. There is a king, we will call him Jesus, and he has given us commands in his holy word. And the herald simply relays the commands of the king to the people who are assembled, who are gathered. That's what church means. Church is a collective noun. Wolves run in packs. Bees buzz in swarms. Birds flutter in flocks. Um, Elephants... I don't know. What do they do? Prance? No, they don't prance. Plod? <laughs> Maybe elephants plod. Um, plod in herds. Um, even vultures hang around in, what's it called? Uh, it's like there's a funny name for vultures. Somebody that's listening in <laughs> can give me the collective noun for vultures. Um, well, what it, what's the collective noun for Christians? It's a church. It's a congregation. It's a body. Um, and... and and Christians are meant to be in a collective noun. Christians by themselves put themselves at great risk and peril. Um, we are designed for a relationship. It is good theology to argue for a relationship. We see relationship even in the Godhead. We serve one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And our relational God has put his relational people into a body, and that body is called the church. Go and find a church, and when you look for one, look for a healthy church that is God-glorifying and which has some of those marks which I have described to you this morning. Friends, um, even as we're talking, I do realize that a number of people have um, um, uh, been engaging on uh, questions and sending in questions as we've been as we've been talking. Um, Vusi is going to listen to the voice note from Christine on my behalf and tell me if we can play it. Um, he's busy doing that right now. Um, Christine, I, I'm hoping that it's in English, although I see the screenshot that you've sent me is in Afrikaans, but that's fine. I can look up Psalm 148 in my Bible. Um, I do see that there are a couple of other questions. There's a question about the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament having two references condemning homosexuality do not lie with a man as one lies with a woman that is detestable that's Leviticus 18.22 and then again if a man lies with a man as one lies with a woman both of them have done what is detestable they must be put to death their blood will be on their own heads that's Leviticus chapter 20 verse 13 and the question would be uh, if the Bible is declaring John 3.16 for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son um, why are um, um, and the question here is homosexual people hated by God in the church. Well, let me just say, Rishab, um, God doesn't hate um, certain um, 
uh, sections of people. God hates sin and he hates it passionately. And the reason for that is he is a holy God. He is separate. He's separate from his creation. And um, by that sense, um, by holy, we talk about transcendent. He's transcendent from his creation. He's separate from his creation. But he's separated from sin, from evil. Um, he is pure in every way and he's separated from every form of evil. Now, God in his word has told us what kinds of things are detestable and evil to him. And he describes many kinds of things. We can summarize them in two ways because Jesus himself summarizes them in two ways. The first four commands, for instance, in the Ten Commandments can be summarized as commands which relate to God. They are vertical commands. And the next six commands flow out of those first four commands which are vertical. They are horizontal commands. They are commands which relate to one another, to people. And they include such things as do not commit adultery, which is any sex outside of marriage. Do not steal. Do not covet. Uh, do not, um, did I say kill? Um, uh, do not steal. I said that one. Um, they they concern the ways that we interact with one another. And so God, in terms of sin, is concerned about how we worship him and how we acknowledge him as God and, and how we bring glory to him and that we don't detract or take away from his glory. And God is concerned about how we engage with other people. Jesus summarizes this uh, in this way. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. This is the first command. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor even as you love yourself. Did I say like? I should have said love. Sorry about that. So in terms of it, God gives very clear commandments in terms of what is sin. Then God gives very clear descriptions in terms of us, um, um, uh, in terms of of us not sinning, and in terms of um, of our sin basically separating us from Him. So we can read in the Book of Romans, both chapter three and chapter six, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we can read descriptions of the kinds of sins that have separated us from God. That includes in chapter one descriptions of sexual sins, uh, as are mentioned in the Book of. Leviticus. In chapter 2, the wrath of God is being reserved for people who sin against God. And then in chapter 3 of Romans, none is righteous. No, not one. No one seeks to understand. No one seeks for God. And this is speaking of both Jews and Gentiles, that all have turned aside. Together have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. He is quoting from a number of Old Testament sorts, uh, sources. It's almost a... It's almost a, a, a when you sing the Psalms, a contenta uh, of quotes that he is giving. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps or snakes uh, uh, is under their lips. In other words, we've sinned in the way that we have spoken. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In other words, we've sinned in the things that we have done and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. We have sinned against God. We have sinned against people. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There would be no hope for anyone, anyone whatsoever. And yet God, who's rich in mercy and love, has made a way where there was no way in the person of Jesus Christ for sinners, sinners of all kinds of sins, <laughs> all types of sins come under one umbrella, judged to be guilty um, by God. We read in Romans chapter 6 that the wages of our sin is death, which is a fearful thought, never mind what kinds of sins you have committed. Paul then gets to Romans chapter 7 and in Romans chapter 7 we read these great words and by the way he's introduced Jesus the whole way through the book of Romans but but in terms of this response to a sinner who recognizes that they have fallen short of the glory of God we read in Romans chapter 7 verse 24 wretched man that I am who will deliver me from this body of death that's a man who has who is undone and the answer that Paul gives is this thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord in other words there is a person 
who is the answer to my wretched estate. And that person is none other than Jesus Christ. He can save us. He can save us from even the worst of sins. And I say the worst of sins because we have sin lists all over Scripture, right? Um, lists uh, that are kind of compiled lists of sins. An example of that would be in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where we read in verse 9, Do you not know that the unrighteous, that sinners, will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Now here comes a list of the kinds of people who will not inherit the kingdom of God. And it's a comprehensive list. It includes all kinds of sins, all types of sins. Do not be deceived neither the sexually immoral or idolaters or adulterers nor men who practice homosexuality nor thieves nor the greedy nor drunkards nor revilers nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God here's the next verse it is amazing and such were some of you in other words God can save swindlers, God can save revilers, God can save drunkards, God can save the greedy, God can save thieves, God can save homosexuals, can save adulterers, can save idolaters, can save the sexually immoral. That's the wonderful good news of the gospel, is a way has been made where there was no way. For us who have sinned against God, we can be saved. We can be covered by the blood of Jesus. We can be brought into new relationship with him. Friends, we do have a caller on the line. I do want to say uh, good morning. It is good to have you with us. Uh, if you can just give our, give your name so I know who, who we're speaking to. Hello? Hi there. Is that John? Yes. John, it's good to hear your voice. How are you doing? You say, you say a good church. Must have nine marks, but I think we only need one mark, man. What is you? <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, you definitely don't just need one mark. That, that uh, biblical leadership plurality of elders in every church. But I get the humour. That is no, funny. No, no, no. <laughs> no. And no, and only, and only, and only a joke, man. <laughs> yeah, no, that is very funny, John. Thank, uh, good, mark, good humour. Mark, listen. Pastor Mark, listen. Tell me, do you believe? Do you believe in 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 soul sleep? That's the first question. Yeah. And the second question is, um, I went to a church. I was mentioned in the denomination, but they believe if if a sinner, if uh, somebody was not born again, if they die. They are immediately destroyed. In other words, they don't believe in eternal. I'm gonna say eternal, damnation. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yes. Oh, John. Oh, that, yeah. That's a. That, the last yeah. thing. Why will there be no sea in the new uh, new earth? Why will there be no sea in the new earth? Yeah. Okay, yeah. so the last yeah. one I'm probably going to have to go away and give a little bit of thought to, okay. but I can quite quickly answer the first two questions, John. I don't know if you want to listen on air. Okay, no problem. You 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 listen on air, and I will answer your questions on air, even as you're listening. Yeah. Thanks so much for phoning in, John. Really do appreciate your call. So um. The, the first question that John asked was relating to sleep and do I believe in soul sleep? Let me just explain uh, what the question is referring to. There are denominations out there. There's one in particular, so I kind of know based on your second question which denomination you're talking about, uh, John. But there are denominations out there that believe in what's called soul sleep. In other words, at the point of death, your soul goes to sleep until such time as the second coming of Christ. And then at that time, you are then revived and you stand before Christ and you face the judgment. It's called the intermediary state. It's what happens after death. And it's a nuance. It's kind of like a small question in greater questions. Um, but no, John, I don't believe in soul sleep. I, I believe that upon death, we are, trans we are translated into an intermediary state 
state where we will either be with Christ in what's called paradise or what's called Abraham's bosom or we will be in an intermediary state uh, which is a preparation place where those who are not in Christ uh, go and they will be in a temporary place of torment until such time as they stand before Jesus Christ the heavenly judge and after are cast away into hell the reason why I believe that uh, is for two reasons one is the idea of sleep in scripture is is uh, is a euphemism for death um it's a it's a euphemism for death it's it's not it's not talking of of sleep you can read about that in in uh, John chapter 11 where Jesus says that his friend Lazarus has gone to sleep and then later he makes it very plain that Lazarus has in fact died um so so the idea of sleep is is just a metaphor it's not a a theological uh, tag um but maybe the 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 best place to describe what happens when we die is again it's the name of Lazarus but it's not the same Lazarus as Lazarus Jesus Christ's friend but rather the parable of Lazarus and the rich man and the parable of Lazarus and the rich man um and I call it a parable but it really doesn't it's not called a parable by Jesus and because it has a specific person's name in it it doesn't have the characteristics of a parable which is a heavenly story with an earthly um, with an earthly meaning uh, it, it actually seems to be a literal story uh, that is being told and um, in that story Lazarus dies and is immediately translated uh, to Abraham's bosom and immediately is in the presence of Abraham and enjoying the blessings of the next life um, when the rich man dies he is immediately translated to a place of torment a place where he is separated from the goodness um, and love and mercies of God and he is in a place of grave torment um, and so I would point there uh, that's not the only place that I'd point I'd point to Jesus Christ speaking also to the um, the man on the cross uh, as he is dying uh, he's got two sinners that are being uh, crucified on either side of him um, those sinners are hurling abuse at him they they have no love for Christ but as Jesus is going through the process of this cruel um, torturous death on the cross one of the sinners uh, one of the sinners one of the thieves clearly comes to faith and he says remember me to Christ when you come into your kingdom and Jesus answers him with these words today you will be with me in paradise and so that uh, doesn't even indicate that says in the words of Christ that Jesus certainly believed that there would be an immediate translation um, of both of them upon death into a place which could be described as paradise in the Old Testament described as Abraham's bosom that's your first question it regards the intermediary state and do I believe in soul sleep and the answer would be no I believe that upon death we either go to a place of reward or to a place of great regret and we wait we await in those places the the second coming of Jesus Christ the establishment of his throne and the judgment which then follows and then after judgment we are either translated into heaven or into hell which is a permanent place which then obviously goes ahead and describes your second question your second question was um, uh, do I believe in um, what is called uh, annihilation that those who are not in Christ are annihilated that there's no such thing as hell annihilation would make the words of Jesus Christ while he was on earth both in the book of Matthew and recorded in other gospels not make any sense he talks about a place where people go there's the gnashing of teeth and the worm does not wither uh, and he speaks uh, in terms of time when he describes hell and that time isn't a short time that time isn't a momentary time that time isn't a time until uh, uh, and until kind of uh, you know they've paid a price like a purgatory kind of time no that time is an eternal time where there will be great regret and uh, and punishment and so precisely because hell is real and precisely because heaven is real and precisely because Jesus is the only way to get there we with earnestly engage in the gospel while we still can a number of questions have come through uh, questions uh, regarding 
um, uh, or requests for prayer, uh, I certainly will read those um, after the after the the uh, the conversation is over this morning. Uh, Eb, thank you very much. Says a kettle of vulch- of vultures. Now, is the, is that are you being serious? Or is it actually a kettle of vultures? You know, some of those collective nouns are a little bit weird, but a kettle of vultures sounds kind of odd um Gwendolyn says uh, good morning why in the bible is jesus spoken of as the last adam uh, and that's from gwen uh, gwen what a great question um i'm guessing that the passage that you are referring to is in romans chapter 5 i'm just turning there in my bible um quickly um and it's death in adam life in christ verse 12 therefore just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all have sinned. For sin indeed was in the world, <coughs> excuse me, before the law was given. But sin was not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those uh, whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, or was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigns through one man, that one man, how much more will those who receive the abundance of the grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man Jesus Christ therefore as one trespass led to condemnation for all men so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men for as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous now the law came into uh, came in to increase the trespass but where sin increased grace abounded all the more so that as sin reigned in death grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord yeah we have this discussion of um, of Adam and Jesus Christ and you can see in Romans chapter 5 just the um, the way that Jesus is presented as greater than Adam in every way we're about to go to um, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 but greater than Adam in every way we see in Adam what we might term theologically a, a federal head that in Adam one man sinned and then sin in Romans chapter 5 is described as having come to all men but in Jesus Christ who we can rightfully call a second Adam or the last Adam in one man we have a death and he dies a death and righteousness comes through that federal head through Jesus Christ to to all that are in Christ that have him as their head I said there was a second um, a second passage that we needed to go to and that second passage uh, is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 the actual words that you uh, spoke are, are listed it says in fact Christ has been raised from the dead in verse 20 the first fruits are those who have fallen asleep there's that word sleep for John um, that euphemism for death um, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. This idea of in Adam uh, there is death, but in Jesus Christ there is life. Um, Jesus is really our greater Adam, <laughs> our last Adam or our second Adam. He's the promised seed that came through Eve's um, line. We, we, we told uh, in Genesis chapter 3 when man sinned um, that he sinned he rebelled against God and for that there was um, there were consequences of the sin there was a curse that was pronounced on the serpent and on man and on the woman uh, she would greatly uh, experience pain in childbirth but even as the sin was given to the woman a promise was made from your seed one would come who would crush the head of the serpent even as his ankle was bitten well we know 
that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that promise, of that promised seed that came into the world through the Virgin Mary and died a death, um, but rose in victory over death and in victory over Satan, ultimately the victor. Jesus Christ is the victor. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 48, As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of the dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. It's talking uh, in that context uh, uh, about about the the. the uh, not just salvation which we have received in Christ, not just sanctification which we go through in Christ, but ultimately the glorification that we will experience at the end of the day as we are released from not just the penalty of sin, not just the power of sin, but one day from the presence of sin. In Adam we experience this sinful state of living in a fallen world, but in Christ one day we will experience a glorified state, separated from sin in all of its vestiges that we might glorify him forever and ever and so maybe just closing in the words of John dear friends now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known but we know that when he appears we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is and we look forward to that great and glorious day it uh, certainly will be happening soon won't it so um, as we continue uh, just with uh, questions and answers that remain I see Teresa you've sent in a voice note I am going to ask if Vusi can prepare that and play that for us he'll tell me to stand by when it's ready to play in the meantime uh, 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 just uh, relates um, a, a prayer request to us another prayer request uh, another request for prayer from grace thank you for that grace and um, as well as um, um, uh, a conversation from um, uh, from someone else um, and uh, I, I will be continuing contacting one or two of the questions that have come up um, I will be um, engaging with um, folk um, after the show uh, Vusi are we ready to play that voice note can I can I hit the play button brother um, he is preparing the note and to resource I'm gonna hit play in three two one ah, you know what I'm hitting play <laughs> <laughs> on the wrong device. We'll see, it's not you. It's me. Okay, let me hit play. Hi, Mark. Hope you and the listeners are doing well. Here's a quick one. What type of view should a healthy church hold as far as prayer is concerned? Like, if I had to give you an example, if I attend a church when maybe everybody prays at the same time, would you say that's a good thing to have in a healthy church? Uh, maybe a second question would be if if the pastor or leader is praying on the pulpit but we don't understand what he's saying um, would you say that is would you say that counts or does it matter seeing that God knows what he's saying like what are your thoughts about that maybe here's the last one if for example um, maybe even if a lady uh, prays for the church would you say that's also something that would count as being part of a healthy church or would you disagree about that? Would you kindly share your thoughts on that matter? Thanks in advance. <laughs> Teresa, I love that you sent in a voice note. Thank you so much for that. It's good to hear your voice. We often hear your questions, don't always hear your voice. So um, that was great. Thank you very much for that. You three questions I, I, I get where you're coming from these questions I'm going to fill in a couple of blanks that maybe you weren't explicit on um, in order to give the questions context um, and I'm going to answer at least two of the questions and the third one I might leave for next week I see we've got 13 minutes left of the program this morning so question number one praying at the same time is that a mark of a healthy church or is that a mark of an unhealthy church Teresa, I want to answer that in two ways. One is, I don't want to be 
too prescriptive when it comes to what churches look like and what churches don't look like. I don't want to be too prescriptive myself from my, from my own kind of thoughts um, in terms of what is healthy and what isn't healthy. But I do want to say that Scripture itself regulates what worship ought to look like. Scripture itself regulates what worship ought to look like. And so you don't need to listen to the opinion of Mark on these matters. You can listen to the opinion of, for instance, the Apostle Paul on these matters. And he speaks about worship and about praying in particular. And I've noticed that many of your questions over the last while have been coming from the book of 1 Corinthians. I suspect that you find yourself right now in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 because your questions relate to topics that are being discussed in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. On the matter of praying and particularly on the matter of everyone praying at the same time, it is my interpretation of 1 Corinthians chapter 14 that in the section on orderly worship, it is unwise to have everyone praying all at once. And the reason for that is our worship, particularly our corporate worship on a Sunday, is to be orderly so that each person might be edified by the folk that are speaking. Now, in particular, Paul has been speaking about prophecy and about tongues in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 12, 13, and 14. But in chapter 14, he he's speaking particularly um, in the context of a worship service. And he says in verse 26, What then, brothers, when you come together, can you remember earlier in the show we spoke about the word church and we said that the word church really means the gathered or the assembled ones. When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. In other words, everyone's jumping in and everyone's like at the same time, they all want to get involved. Um, the, the, the There's no there's no liturgy yeah everyone's it's a, like a free for all on a sunday everybody wants to wants to get their word in well paul says uh, if any speak in a tongue uh, let there be two or at most three and each in turn and let someone inter- interpret but if there's no one to interpret let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to god let Two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is being said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For if all prophecy, because if all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Here's the principle that he lays down. God is not a God of confusion. He is a God of peace. The context in the Corinthian church seems that there is disorder because everybody wants to have their say. And as a result, nobody has been edified. Nobody has been built up. And so Paul says he regulates the worship in Corinth. And he says, friends, number one, in verse 27, let there be only two or at most three and each in turn. In other words, when it comes to tongues, one at a time, please. (laughs) I don't want more than one at a time. Each person, one at a time. We clearly need to know what was said. And there needs to be an interpretation as they come one at a time so that we can understand and be built up and be edified. And this is underlined because when he gets to prophecy, he says the same thing. Um, He says, uh, for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be encouraged. Now, that's part of his broader conversation as you go through 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13, and 14. He wants the church to be edified. He wants the church to be built up. And so he doesn't want confusion in the worship services, one at a time, one at a time. And so I would say that there is a strong case in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 26 to verse 32, for orderly worship and for one at a time praying in particular. Now, there are different interpretations or different applications in the church today and I want to be sensitive to this but you did ask me the question and I have taken you to a verse and shown you a verse of scripture which seems evidently clear to me it turns out that this same passage of scripture answers your second question and your second question was related to a pastor at the front saying something that no one understands 
I'm going to assume that you're talking about a pastor who's claiming to speak in a tongue that is unknown by anyone in the church. And then the question is, is that valid? Um, is that valid? And I would say that this passage in particular would say, no, that is not the way that we go about worshipping on a Sunday morning. On a Sunday morning, everything is to be done for the mutual edification of the saints. If you want to see that point being made, he actually begins 1 Corinthians chapter 14 from verse 1 to 5, making that point. Everything should be done to build the church up. And, he, and that idea of being built up, uh, it is a repeated frame. Now, I'm just looking at the passage here and I'm counting at least five times where it says being built up, being built up, being built up. Be careful what you say. Everything that we do must be done for the purpose of us being built up. And so when you get to verse 26 to verse 32, you've got this idea of everything must be done to build us up. If a person is standing at the front of the church and he's saying something that nobody in the church understands, no one's been built up. That's the bottom line. Paul actually addresses that even for the individual in great detail from verse 13 to verse 25 of 1 Corinthians chapter 14 that all these things must be done for edification. Does So, in conclusion, I would read for that particular question, verse 27, if anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three and each in turn and let someone interpret. In other words, is there a person with the gift of interpretation? Um, that then would need to happen immediately so that folk in the church can be built up by what was being said. Let me also just say that I do believe that 1 Corinthians chapter 14 from verse 1 to verse 25 makes a case that the gift of tongues is a language known to men. It is a language known to men. It's a language that can be understood. It is a miracle that can be marveled at. And so in the context, for instance, in South Africa, let me explain to you what I mean. It would be an Mlungu, a Wati in a church, speaking in, let's go with Zulu, a language that he hadn't learnt, and he is declaring the great and glorious deeds of the Lord, and everyone in the church marveling because a miracle had taken place. That would be in line with the day of Pentecost, that's Acts chapter 2, as well as other occurrences of the gift of tongues in the book of Acts, including Acts chapter 10, and I think Acts chapter 18, and uh, chapter 15. Um, and that would also also uh, be in accordance with 1 Corinthians chapter 14 verse 1 to 25. I hope that I've answered those two questions comprehensively enough. Thank you for asking them. I really do appreciate it, uh, Teresa. Friends, we've had a couple of other questions that were asked uh, this morning, but I'm looking at the time and I'm thinking, we don't have time to get through all of this. Um, a number of questions, number of requests for prayer and uh, a number of, uh, of interactions. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to actually sign us off now. We're going to sign off and go to a song. Um, and so in signing off each week, we pretty much pray for the same things. And I will be praying according to what I say even now. Prayers do go out to all the elders and deacons who hold the line in local churches as well as to missionaries uh, sent from South African churches and serving in foreign fields. Our prayers for and much respect goes out to first responders, to police, to our defense force, to those who dispense justice in our country, to firefighters, to paramedics, to our nation's nurses and medical personnel, to educators as well as to correctional facility officers all across our land. You have been listening to Table Talk with me, your host Mark. We're going to be going to news now and so until next week Friday, do walk wisely, do live holy, do testify zealously, playing out with crown he is.